Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert, and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of Harvesting Nature. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest of Nature Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got uh, Justin Townsend here, editor-in-chief over at Harvest of Nature. And uh, today, really excited to bring you a very special guest, um, very well-known. I'm excited, been a big fan for years, so I will let him introduce himself. Uh, oh, really? So I, I get to... I, all right, well, I am... Uh, I am Lothar, render of worlds, master of all. <laughs> Kneel before my munificence. <laughs> That's what happens when you don't introduce me. That's true. Okay. Well, uh, I'm happy to introduce Hank Shaw then on the show. <laughs> well, hey, hey, not, not quite as grandiose as Lothar, render of worlds. But I'll, I'll, I'll I don't know. I still think equally impressive. Yeah. So uh, we also have Corey on board. How's it going? And uh, Colin. Hey, how's it going? So uh, we have, I'm sure everyone's eager to hear what we're going to chat with about Hank uh, or with Hank about. There we go. Um, but I'm not going to tell you. Instead, you're going to have to listen to the whole episode and 
we'll just go through it as we go. But um, so Hank, we're I mean, we're really curious. I'm really curious. Um, I know you have a heavy culinary background, and I want to know sort of how you got into the whole restaurant game and and your beginnings in the culinary world. Whatever you're willing to share with us and provide insight on as a a former professional chef myself i'm uh i'm I'm eager to learn the history well uh it actually starts considerably before i ever worked in a restaurant so i'm the the last of four kids and there's a seven-year gap between me and my my next oldest sister and so at one point it was just me my mom and my stepdad at the house and they really like to eat good food. So when you only have the one kid, you can actually go to restaurants. And especially if the kid is into food, which I was, I got exposed to some of the best, not only just regular food, but some of the best high-end food in New York City in the early 80s. So I can distinctly remember when I was a little kid, maybe, I don't know, 12 years old, that what I wanted for my birthday was to go to Le Cirque which at the time was the French restaurant in Manhattan. And it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out it was the last year that Daniel Boulud was the executive chef for Le Cirque. So what's been interesting about that is it, it dovetails into uh, kind of my approach to game as well. And we'll get into that later. But after, you know, having been able to be experienced to all this kind of food and then you know, I pretty much grew up in a restaurant, um, the, the restaurant called the Sleepy Hollow in Fanwood, New Jersey, which is where mom and Frank used to hold court. You know, we used to be there multiple evenings a week and I'd sit there and drink my fake cocktail, you know, <laughs> Shirley Temple or something like that, play the one video game that they had in the corner while mom and Frank would, would have a dinner and sit at the bar. And, you know, I grew up watching Monday Night Football at a bar pretty much. So that atmosphere and that environment is basically part of my DNA. So I started to actually work in restaurants in college. And the funny thing is I, I end up with a, the stereotypical beginning to it is of many, many restaurant chefs is that I was a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher at an Ethiopian restaurant of all places. And oh, cool. yeah, it was, it was, it was weird being the, uh, it was, it was a kind of a weird juxtaposition, right? Because like everybody talks about, oh, yeah, it's like I like a Latino guy who's the mm-hmm. the only Latino guy in the in the kitchen at the is the dishwasher, right? Well, I'm the only white guy in that kitchen, and I'm the dishwasher, so it was, it was kind of funny and humbling at the same time. <laughs> well, I mean, a couple months later, so the the sous chef doesn't show up, which as a former restaurant chef, you know that, that never happens, right? And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the my boss, a woman named Mesalesha Yele, she says, you know, you got to cook tonight. I'm like, okay. She's like, can you cook? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can cook. And so the rest is history. And, and I ended up becoming her sous chef and ended up working at a fish place for a little bit. Um, I worked at a steakhouse for a little bit. And then I, and then I kind of left the restaurant trade, actually, to be a newspaper reporter. Nice. And uh, I, I saw, so I was going more in depth to your bio you were, you wrote a lot of political pieces as a as a newspaper writer i spent 18 years covering politics and uh it was quite the career actually it's uh i had i had a lot of fun doing it uh and then towards the end one of the reasons why i'm, I'm here right now is that it became one of those things where 
you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have the same deal where something that you're good at that you don't necessarily love anymore. And, mm-hmm. but you know, when that thing that you're good at, but yet you don't love it anymore, pays your mortgage, right? Well, you still got to do it. And yeah. so last four or five years of my reporting career was less than fun, but it was, you know, I, I can't complain. That's awesome. What, uh, what led you into your writing? What, uh, sort of moved you in that direction out of the kitchen and into the, into a desk to say, well, writing in, in and of itself has always come very easily to me. Um, I've never been the one who have stared at a blank page. I'm not one who is scared by essays when I was in school, like writing is good. Like, you know, I've, it's something that comes easily to me. So I've always done it. Um, and I started actually stringing as a newspaper reporter, even in college, even while cooking. And what ended up happening was I realized that there were two basically similar professions. If you really break it down, being a, a, a line cook and a sous chef and being a newspaper reporter is effectively the same job. You work weird hours. You work with a bunch of misfits. <laughs> like, side note: if you ever want to see what a real kitchen looks like, watch Ratatouille. Like the, the kitchen, <laughs> yeah. the, the kitchen, and that. Yes, that's, that is the most accurate description of a working kitchen that I've ever seen on film. I, I would agree. I think the most outrageous, outlandish characters I've ever met are in the kitchen. Whether you know how long they stay around or move, or you know. Uh, stay in the kitchen or go to the next job. It's just, it's a, uh, <laughs> exactly. So, so you, you know, you tend to work hard, play hard, probably drink too much. <laughs> and the most important thing about it is you do it because you love it. You know, nobody becomes a reporter to make money. Nobody becomes a cook to make money. If you are in either of these things, you're foolish or, or misguided or just downright stupid. Because these are two professions that people do it because they love to do it. And mm-hmm. you hope to be able to make a living, but it's not necessarily something that, you know, oh, yes, I'm going to be a chef so I can make a million dollars. I'm like, that's crazy talk. It's very, very few. It's like the, you, know, you look at like college athletes going from high school to college, you get a, you know, a large amount go. And then from college to the professional world and even, an even minute amount go that route. I think the same with, both writing in the culinary world. It's like you have tons of people that do it, tons of people that are great at it, but the ones that are at the top making the millions or, you know, it's, it's such a small representation of the entire population. But I guarantee you there are more professional baseball players than there are million dollar cooks. Absolutely. Yeah. Easily. Easy. And what, uh, so what point did the did the two intersect? Did the cooking and the writing and then I guess even the outdoor world kind of come together? So you? the outdoors has always been kind of a piece of me. Um, I, uh, although hunting didn't come until later. But fishing and, and picking wild plants and mushrooms and that sort of thing, I've been doing that since, well, forever. And so that's always been a piece of what I've done, always. And it's typically been that which has kept me sane when, you know, for the most of my career, you know, 
political reporting gets in the way, right? You know, because you know you're wearing a suit and you're you're in a marble hall and your people are lying to you all day, and then you it's, it's all of that kind of stuff, and then you just at the, on the the weekends or the days off or whenever, you know, you just got to see trees and fish and and something, you know, and so for decades it was pretty much that's that was my outlet. Well, like I mentioned, the last few years of my newspaper career was like, eh, I don't know if I really want to do this forever. And it occurred to me that there was somebody who did this before me. So there's a, a well, if you're of a certain age, there's a famous New York Times reporter named Johnny Apple. His byline was R.W. Apple. And it, well, he was a chief political correspondent for the New York Times for quite some time. And he too, tired of it. And he shifted and became a, a food writer and became an amazing food writer, one of their best. So I kind of want to be the poor man's Johnny Apple. So I started to write about food in those last four or five years of being a newspaper reporter. And I started Hunter Angler Gardner Cook, which is how most people know who I am and what I do, even before that. like So I started in 2007. So and I didn't, I didn't quit my day job until 2010. So I kind of and I kind of come in in the silver age of food blogging. There, there's a mm -hmm. good double handful of golden age food bloggers who predate me, but it's only about a double handful. And so the 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 food blogging world really became the end all be all for me in from about 07 to about 2013 or so, where. I started to, you know, do well with writing. I started to cook more. I started to find myself more as like, what is this? What are you going to do? What is your, what is your contribution to the, to the conversation going to be? And it, it became pushing the boundaries of wild foods and, and expanding the horizons of the people who are willing to, to read my stuff and, and giving them ironclad tested recipes to get them out of their comfort zone to, because I, one thing I've, I've, I've mentioned over and over again is that if I'm going to tell you to do something that you perceive of as weird with tenderloin or, you know, speckle belly goose breast or something, something, something that you can't buy in the store, right? If, uh, if my recipe doesn't work, and it's my fault. I basically hosed you on a piece of meat that you went through an enormous amount of time and effort to acquire. And you, you only get the one chance. So it's been extremely important for me that every single recipe, both on Hunter, Angler, Gardner, Cook, and in all four of my books, work to the level, to the best level as possible. Because the my holidays are a nightmare for me in the sense that even though knock on wood and I'm knocking on my head right now <laughs> that I haven't had any, you ruined my holiday emails or, or messages on social media. I live in fear of that because you know, what if somebody makes a Christmas goose with one of my recipes and, and it wrecks their holiday and yeah. that's, that'd be terrible. Right. You know, what if somebody proposes to proposes, right. And makes a fancy man, a fancy meal and, it sucks. <laughs> right. Like you don't want to be that guy. So that that's <laughs> no. the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night and like to be accurate, to be right. And to be clear. I think 
yeah, we we definitely live by the same standard. Not that I, I don't think I have quite the attention to some of the recipes that that we've put out. Uh, you know, harvesting nature, but I, I'm I'm on our team, and as we've had riders come in and out, and cooks come in and out, and create stuff, and it's just like I, I've never been one to be like, let's just put it out there. It looks great, like subpar is not acceptable because you know, somebody's going to look at this and trust the validity and trust the reputation, you know, just like you and be like, I, I put, you know, two months into scouting and my one prime day of hunting. And I have this nice, you know, venison backstrap that I'm going to prepare. And if the recipe's off, you know, you, you do something as small as like, a teaspoon of cayenne versus a quarter teaspoon or a half. It's like, it's gone. And you know, my favorite one is that people do that. I've had to specifically like in all caps and underline and like circle and arrows and shit. My barbacoa. Uh huh. If I had a dollar for every number of uh, any, any number of people who have sent, Oh, I really loved it, but it was murderously spicy. I'm like, well, how is it possibly murderously spicy? So it calls for two or three canned, chipotles and they do the whole can yes yes you know what <laughs> uh, i'm guilty of that <laughs> <laughs> three cans of chipotles we have, have some uh, sense man <laughs> i i last worked at a restaurant here in key west and we had a uh it was like a vegan chipotle like mayo essentially or sour cream that we did with cashews and um a lot of the cooks that worked here, we tried to make sure that everybody could read and write English, but you, you take what you can get and not to knock anybody for that. But same scenario happened. I come in one day and I'm like tasting sauces and I'm checking everything. And I, I taste the, I taste the sauce and my eyes start watering. I was like, Oh my gosh. And it was the same thing. It's, I think I put two, put two chipotle peppers in there. So I come and it's like, beat red and they had dumped two cans in there and they had served it and nobody had complained <laughs> at least at that moment and then i think two days later we got a yelp review which I, you know uh, i can go on about yelp but um sure uh it just oh, the 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 front of the house manager came the owner they're like what's wrong with this recipe and i'm like whoa, whoa like to be fair like <laughs> it's it, it was a mistake, but it was a good teaching moment. But man, Chipotle. You did not say latas de Chipotle. You said no. Chipotles. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, two cans. Got it. <laughs> I but, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Lessons learned. Well, probably to those guys, it was like, ah, oh, no biggie. It's yeah. Right. Like, oh, yeah, it tastes good. <laughs> I, I think half the stuff they're like, oh, this is, I don't know, a little off, maybe not enough spice, but I'm like, you guys, they can't like, some people can't handle the heat. Have it's you just, ever had like a real deal, real Mexican salsa de arbol? Uh, recipe something on the order of like 60 arbol chilies, two garlic cloves, a little bit of water and some lime. That's insane. That's a lot of chili. It's, it's a great salsa, but like, oh. <laughs> I don't make it, know. Make it, makes the underside of your eyelids sweat. 
I don't know if I could do it. I have this uh this weird thing with the with the capsaicin sometimes. It causes my like sternum to spasm and get like a hiccup. And so depending on which pepper it is, I get hiccup for like an hour after eating it. It's it's a it's an odd thing that occurs in like a small part of the population. But I think Colin, you've seen me do it. Like yeah. we've been out eating. Ugh. And some of those I love spicy food, but it just it it kills me. And if you had a couple beers, it just makes it worse. Oh, wow. That's a bummer. I'll have to keep my eye out for uh, that salsa de arbol because I love spicy Mexican food. Um, but I can't do like spicy hot wings. Like uh, like if you go to Buffalo Wild Wings or something and you get like one of the really spicy ones, I can't do that. That, that just burns my mouth. But if it's really flavorful spicy, then uh, that's usually better for me. I'm kind of the same way. Like, so I, I'll actually have the arbol salsa posted on Hunter Angler Grinder cook soon. So okay. you, don't have, you don't have long to wait for that. But, um, but the spicy chicken wings is like, so I went to, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of the place. It's in Buffalo, of course, but it's one of the places in Buffalo. And it's the one that is just outside of town. It's like a, it's, it's like a, a, it's a, it's like a neighborhood bar. And, you know, I consider myself pretty good with spice. And so they have all the different levels. And, and I said, well, yeah, I think I want them spicy. They're like, how spicy? I'm like, well, they're, they're like, all right, when you go to Thai food, do you get a Thai hot? I'm like, yeah, usually. They're like, all right, number five. The <laughs> hell? Because <laughs> they went to 10. <laughs> and I'm like, Ooh, yeah, I'm okay. Well, there. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with five. I'll trust your judgment. And they were hot. I mean, I could eat them, but they were hot. I can only imagine what the 10 was. Like, just pure pepper spray that they spray in your face while you're eating the wings. That's right. I, I don't see it. Those people go around and do like the hottest wing competitions or like all that stuff. And they just put down some of that food that's like melts paint off the wall. I yeah. just yeah. can't do I mean, it. If no. you can't get any flavor in it, like what's the point? You just end up with a really spicy mouth and spicy fingertips. Like, you know, it's not enjoyable anymore. I think what it is, it's like drug addicts, right? So you need more and more and more and more. So like for you, for the, for us, right? You eat a, we eat a scotch bonnet or habanero and it'll light us up. It's good, but it'll light us mm-hmm. up. For them, it's probably like a chicken wing, you know, like, uh, 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 no, I need the triple reaper, you know, or whatever, or the, the mythical pepper X or whatever it is. And I think it's just, they built up this incredible tolerance that yep. I think they do get the flavor out of them where, where you and I wouldn't. I think, uh, I support the, the idea of the tolerance. I went to college in New Orleans and uh, when I first got down there, it's like, you know, I came from Oklahoma and we're not known for our spicy food. Like you get chili and things like that, but not, not overly spicy. And um, I started eating a lot of crawfish, a lot of Cajun Creole food. And it's like that, that spice introduction came in there. And then I find myself like two years later, like my family would come down to visit and I take them out to eat and I'm like, yeah, I'll take this and it's good. And I so my mom's like sitting over there, face is red. She's sweating. Her eyes are watering. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, this is like, it's on fire. I was like, no, it's not that bad. Like if you don't want it, I'll eat it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, just those couple of years I built the tolerance. Um, well, the Ethiopian restaurant was very, was mm-hmm. super instructive with that. And if you've never eaten Ethiopian food, even the the yellow curries that they had, the alicha, mm-hmm. that's what they give to sick people in Ethiopia. It's spicier than most food that you would get in the United States. I, so I, the Tibbs, the Dorawat, or whatever, 
um, is, is pretty darn spicy. And every now and again, we'd get, it's always a white dude too. It's, it's always a white guy from the, like the ages of like 18 to 40, who's going to come into our restaurant and say, make it really hot. And so on the ticket, it would say, it would just have like a teardrop on it. And that would be the server's <laughs> indicator. <laughs> and like, okay, all right. So, you know, you just dump like a fistful of Burberry in there and a guy just goes out of his mind. <laughs> That's crazy. Do you, I, I, do you know why the uh, Ethiopians serve that uh, particular curry to sick people? Do you know what kind of properties it has or is it? Like, uh, like it's a got a lot of turmeric thing? in it, a lot of okay. turmeric and it's milder. It's significantly milder than the red stuff. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot of garlic in it, a lot of turmeric, a lot of fenugreek. I mean, it depends on where you go. Everybody's a little different, but, but ours had a lot of fenugreek in it. And all of those are very antiseptic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, it, yeah. it's like an antiseptic property, not like it just opens up your sinuses or something like wasabi would do or. No, it's not like mustard. Stuff. It's not mustard spicy. It's, it's still okay. chili spicy. And the, oh. the turmeric, turmeric, I, I believe is also like an anti-inflammatory as well. It is. Um, so that definitely helps with things. Corey, uh, you're off the quiet. You still there? I'm just enjoying listening. That's good. <laughs> so I'm I'm a big fan of Ethiopian food. I think every time we go to DC, uh, I find my way into some Ethiopian restaurants. It's been like a tradition since I've been going up there. Um, it's a good place for it. Yeah, there's a, a lot of good restaurants there. Always eat with your right hand. Right hand. Here's it. Like everybody listening to this, if you ever eat any food in the in the the not only the Arab world but the Ethiopians as well, anywhere where you're eating with your hand, right hand only, ladies and gentlemen, because yep. your left hand is for wiping your ass. Even <laughs> if you don't actually wipe your ass with your left hand, that's the tradition. So, like, I'm left-handed, so I have to sit on my left hand and eat with my right because, you know, ask me how I know how how mortifying that is to your. Your Ethiopian friends. <laughs> Probably some odd looks, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, they're like dumb white guy. <laughs> so, uh, to sort of loop back around, um, I guess at what period? So, we're looking now early 2000 or yeah, mid 2000s, early 2010s, teens, whatever you would call it. But, uh, looking at the creation of Hunter Angler, Gardner Cook, and sort of getting back into that. So how did you get into hunting? Because I'm, I'm curious. I, I guess I never – I always just assumed you just always hunted. Like it just came natural. Woke up and mm-hmm. started. No, I mean, that fishing is like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, the funny thing is, is so I'm working on my fish and seafood cookbook right now, and, and what people don't really know about me is that I've been cooking – fish and seafood professionally in, in, in the home for 25 years longer than I have game. So the, yeah, it's crazy. Like, so writing this book is actually being pretty difficult, but to answer your question, I started hunting five years before I started hunting like Gardner cook. So I started hunting, uh, when I was 32 and I, uh, I started in Minnesota. Well, actually technically I started in Aberdeen, South Dakota, but I was living in Minnesota at the time and it just, it felt like I now had the third leg of a stool. So I was a good angler and I was a good, you know, 
gatherer, forager, whatever word you want to use for it. And being taken under the wing of my friend Chris Niskanen, um, who at the time was the outdoor writer for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, that's the newspaper I was working at at the time, he could read land the same way that I could read bodies of water. And because everybody who's a good angler knows you're not just a person with a rod and reel in your hand. You know, there's a, there's where do you put the boat? How do you run the boat? You know, we were talking before we went on the air about, you know, a fishing guide in the keys who couldn't run his boat very well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot to being a good fisherman, whether you're commercial or, or recreational. And similarly, I saw that there was a lot to being a good hunter besides being able to shoot your gun or, or shoot your bow. And that really, really excited me. And I wanted that knowledge and it felt like completing something. And as I told Niskanen, like he created a monster cause now I hunt more than he does. And, you know, and it's just, it's taken a hold and it's become an integral part of how I live my life. What what was your first hunt? What were you hunting for? Well, it's Aberdeen, South Dakota. What else could it be? It's pheasants. <laughs> ah. Um, yeah, it was a pheasant hunt, and I uh, no pheasants were harmed in the uh, in the initial hunt. <laughs> At least not by me. Niski got a bunch, but because um, I'd never shot a shotgun before, and you know, if you've never shot a shotgun, and probably very few people listening to this know this, but urban people who have never shot a shotgun will think that if you point a shotgun vaguely kind of sort of near the thing that you're trying to shoot, it will just die. And nothing could be further from the truth. I, I find shotgunning significantly more difficult than rifle shooting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it took me a while to, to get good and all that kind of stuff. But the, even that was fascinating. I'm like, huh, the first jolt was like, well, this isn't going to be easy. Well, let's, let's figure out how to get good at it. And, you know, the first hunt was pheasants, and then I started to go out on my own for squirrels and rabbits. And to this day, I love a good rabbit hunt. We don't get a ton of good rabbit hunts in the in the far west uh, because uh, we do have some decent rabbit populations here and there, but most of the desert cottontails are very small, and mm -hmm. they're a full pound lighter than the ones in Minnesota. And even the Oklahoma bunnies are, per, are a bit bigger. Um, yep. But there's a lot of different subspecies of, of cottontail and some are big and some are not. And, um, and I just, I, I just dearly love rabbit hunting and small game hunting to this day. And even though I do a fair bit of big game hunting, I'm primarily a small game hunter. That's good. So since we're, since we're on the, the, the point of, uh, of rabbit, so Growing up in Oklahoma, always rabbits in the wintertime. You don't ever hunt them after the first freeze or until after the first freeze, all this other stuff. And then when I lived in San Diego, it's like rabbit season year round. And like you could go out, shoot them, you know, almost middle of summer, whenever, like no problems. And I, I don't know, I could never wrap my head around it. And I, I, don't think I've dedicated the time to sort of dig in. I'm sure there's a biological reason for the difference, but I was wondering if you, you had any thoughts on it. Sure. It's easy. Um, so the old wives tale about never hunt a rabbit for a frost uh, has to do with uh, botfly larva. So some people call them wolves or warbles. 
Mm-hmm. They, um, if you if you've ever seen Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, that thing they stick in Chekhov's ear, that's basically a botfly larva. It's this nasty old grubby thing that can be like the size of a digit on your finger. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt the meat at all, but it lives underneath the skin, and it's horrifying. It's disgusting and hard. You want to just burn the entire location with fire, and then just oh oh oh, just terrible. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I've I've seen this is wrong. Yeah, I, I've seen the photos be- before, after, in between, and I just like it's, it's oh, they're just gnarly, totally gnarly. Well, the thing is, you have to say, okay, if I'm hunting rabbits in warm weather, this could happen, mm-hmm. and you just have to steel yourself to like, oh, yay, there's a bot fly under this thing's larva. So, so that's that's the primary reason, and they they die off in the cold weather. The other reason, and this is this is um, region to region, is that the incidence of tapeworm cysts will decrease in cold weather. So of all of the animals that we hunt, with the exception of weird varmints, of all of the so-called normal animals that we hunt, there are no more parasitized animals than lagomorphs, so hares and rabbits. And well, virtually none of them will actually hurt you. There's a number of them that are visible and gross looking. So mm-hmm. it's, it's led to a lot of the, of the traditions. And, you know, this is the thing though. You could, you could shoot a uh, jackrabbit in Arizona in February and it can still have bot fly. Mm-hmm. So, but that said, if you shoot a, a white tailed jackrabbit in say Colorado in, in January, it will not have a bot fly at all. And so Oklahoma is a little bit similar like that. Now do the, uh, you know, the, I guess the aridness of, of the climates affect that as well. You know, Southern California being super dry, um, and maybe just general lack of, of some of the same, like flying pests that you would find in more humid or, or more moist. Oh no, they'll get butterflies in in San Diego. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's just, they don't care. Okay. You know, I mean, once you once you see it twice, I'm like, eh, gross. Move on. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Well, thanks for that because, um, like I said, always something on my mind. Never something I was like put too much time into researching. I guess I I just rather go out and shoot them and go with it. So I never found a problem with it. So, and they're great to throw at people. <laughs> well, that sounds <laughs> terrible. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be an added bonus depending on who you talk to <laughs> oh man i don't know i've heard so many horror stories about botflies and just like the way that it's like they lay their eggs and they could like lay it on a leaf and like you brush the leaf and then it like gets into a cut and it's like ugh. some of those are probably you know um urban legends but it's just like regardless it's ugh. oh i can actually answer that question so there's no bot fly that can affect a human being north of oaxaca mexico okay so huh. if you're from like oaxaca to about the amazon and probably a little bit below there are a couple of species that could get could get to you oh, but even then wow. you have fingers dude like if, yeah. you, if you get this lump and this lump is like hmm i wonder what that is like you can whack this thing before it gets to be as big as your finger, right? So the bad thing is these things hang out yeah. in the nasal cavities of deer. And could you imagine being a deer 
hanging around doing your thing with this pinky finger size grub chewing on the inside of your nasal cavity with no fingers to pick your nose. Super tar- <laughs> terrible. Uh, that would drive me. That would drive me insane. I right? think I would. Yeah. I, uh, I think I saw it was on a mediator episode where they did that right. and they, they pulled it out of the back of a nasal cavity of, uh, out of a coos deer, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it, it might have been the black tail that on the hunt that I was with him. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. It might, it might maybe, be that episode because I, I do remember him. I remember Ranella. I mean, he was on another ridge, but they came back to the clamp. He's like, "You'll never believe what happened." I'm like, "What? A botfly fall out of its nose?" I'm like, "Yes, how did you know?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he pulled that thing out of the back of the nasal cavity, it just sort of, like shivers up my spine. I was like, "Imagine living with that thing just constantly itching, and you can never get it out. It's like the worst form of torture. Like you can't even put your thumb over the other nostril and blow it out." <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Justin, you want to keep talking about it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we definitely fell down a slippery slope on that one. Um, so now we've had that discussion. Let's go back to talk about food. <laughs> Delicious. So I do I do have one question. So 2013, uh, you won a James Beard Award. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, definitely a highlight, I think, to any and all chefs and cooks um what i don't know what i have so many questions about it but um what uh what what kind of feelings do that drive especially a blog as well you know your website i think the the initial was just like because i had been nominated twice before mm-hmm. so when you get nominated you, you're on the podium right because it's only they only nominate three so that's when I finally won it, there was a lot of things that were going on. So that night it was like wild food night. So there was like six of us who were involved in wild food, like including Ranella, actually, he was nominated that year too, um, who were nominated. And then the nice of the night would go on like, boom, didn't win, boom, didn't win, boom, didn't win, boom, didn't win. Like, Oh my God, what is this? So like a massacre. They like invited us all out and then they just like smacked us all down. And and then they called my name and it's like yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, the other thing that was pretty funny is like everybody there. I mean, it's Manhattan, right? So everyone's trying to be a little bit too cool for school. Like, screw that. I'm from Jersey, and like I'm stoked, and I'm going to tell you I'm stoked, and I'm just not going to be. I'm not going to be quiet about it. And I think everybody got a kick out of the fact that like, yes, I really was excited to win this thing. And I think the, you know, when it, the, that initial night kind of came down and you th- started to think about it a little bit more. So I was a distance runner in high school and college. And, and then I ran pretty significantly semi-professionally for a few years after college. And I'd always had it in my head that I wanted to make the Olympics. And I got very close to the Olympic trials in the marathon. And I had to, at one point, make a decision of, do I continue to train for four more years to make the Olympic standard? I was only a couple, I was a couple minutes off it, which is not that much in the marathon. Or do I live a life, you know? And, and that's, just, that's a hard thing to do when you're in your mid twenties, right? So, you know, are you, this is a thing that you dream about every single night for years and then to say i i did have the talent to make the trials i did not have the talent 
to make the team, let alone win a medal. So I had put that dream away many years by the time I won the Beard Award. And it finally felt when they put that medal around my neck that that's my Olympic medal. Like, even though I wasn't going to get it in running, it was significant in the sense that, like, yeah, yeah, fuck yeah, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was, it was nice. I mean, it, it definitely helped a little bit uh, from a just a strictly mechanical professional level, but it meant a lot more than that. Did, did you set out with a goal to win it? Like, no. At, at any point, or did you just like, hey, you've been nominated, you know, the first couple times? Um, it's, it's, it, it keeps you, I mean, if you think that you could still win it, um, it keeps you, you know, to use the hackneyed phrase, it, it, it preserves the eye of the tiger. Like, you know, you wake up every day and like, this could happen. I could, you know, I'm going to need to work harder and, and make sure everything is tight. Make sure my writing is better and just make sure my cooking is better. And, and, and just make sure that everything is just as, as good as you can do. And it gives you this thing on the horizon to shoot for. And, and I think that really everybody needs that no matter what it is that you do. If you don't, it doesn't have to be like a metal around your neck, but it has to be something because fat cats don't hunt. And, Mm -hmm. you know, all of us, all myself included, you can get too comfortable with whatever it is that you do. And, you slip into habits and rhythms that are not necessarily healthy and you need certain wake up calls to be put back into motion. Now that said, it's equally unhealthy to be constantly in motion and constantly going from goal to goal to goal because you'll get tired out and you'll, you'll be the candle that burns twice as bright and half as long. So you do need those periods where you do just kind of like crack open a beer and, you know, watch Netflix or something, but you know, with that, the, with the absence of middle term goals, uh, I think it's a dangerous thing for a creative person, you know, whether you're a cook or a writer or, or even a hunter for that matter, because you know, I, I'm a damn good fisherman and I could live to be 200 years old and I would still not know everything there's to know about fishing. And the same, I mean, Lord, like I, I mean, I like to joke that I can cook way better than Steve Rinella can. I bet Steve Rinella has, has forgotten more about big game hunting than I'll ever know. So (laughs) like, like, can I kill a deer? Sure. I can kill a deer, but like that guy's legit good. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, I mean, it's like, but you, you keep trying to get better every day. And I think that's important in whatever it is that is that you do. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, it's the goals, a sort of. Uh, I'm a big you guys. These guys big with goals, big with like what direction do we want to go in? What kind of personally, recipe wise, trying to improve. Um, I think it's always good to cooking world. You know, I argue a lot, or not argue a lot, but it's just. I talk a lot. Confidence in the kitchen is one of the biggest things, but it's just like the willingness to improve upon uh, failures and short shortcomings and in, in meals and dishes. And you know, the average average home cook is putting out something that that tastes good. A professional wants to find you know 
more and more ways to be better and to express themselves and, and all those other things. And I think in the hunting world, everybody set goals for themselves as well. You know, I want to go travel out West this year. I want to go up North this year. I want to shoot, you know, this size deer or X amount of pheasants or, you know, uh, I want to catch a tarpon on the fly. Like everybody's got goals. And I think that that healthy motion towards them, I think keeps the outdoors and spirited individuals alive. Um, yeah. I mean, I think from a kitchen standpoint, you know, you're looking at techniques and you're looking at cuisines mostly, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you know, you improve your knife skills or improve your ability to fold a dumpling, improve your ability to make tortillas, improve your ability to understand a cuisine that makes you happy. You know, one of the things that, um, especially now when people are talking about, you know, cultural appropriation and da 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 da. Like, you know, I'm a white guy, so I can't cook some food not cooked by white people. So, and, you know, you will see that from time to time. And it's, it's justifiable in the sense that if you're going to dip into somebody else's cuisine, you have to do one of two things. Really, you have to do both things. You have to either really this goes with it. Like if you're going to really do it, like I'm doing Mexican food, you have to always, whether you get into it heavily or not, you always have to credit your sources. You always mm-hmm. have to say, uh, like I just posted a, a recipe for Dandan noodles, which is a, a Sichuan dish. Well, I know Chinese food. Okay. You know, probably better than most, but, but not better than, you know, Fuchsia Dunlop or Kyo Kian Lam or Grace Young or like people who are really, really great at it. Those are the people who I refer to and I, and I question them when I do Chinese food, but you're, you're giving credit to them. And, and more so when you're just dipping into something, you need to say, this is, you know, cause you didn't invent flour tortillas. You didn't invent like my, the, people get in trouble. We're like, Hey, here's this thing that I made. And it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a classic dish in somebody's cuisine. Right. Mm-hmm. And that person never, even acknowledges that this thing has another name, you know, or it comes from a, a real vibrant culture. Right. So I think as those of us on, you know, we're talking right now, we, one of the things that we do is we present food from other cultures in a wild game context or a fish mm-hmm. context. And what it does is it opens up people to these other cuisines. So it's incumbent on us to try to get it right. And to, legitimately point people in the direction of, Hey, if you like this, like, you know, shaking beef or something that I, you do with venison backstrap. Um, I'd had shaking beef a couple of times, but the first time I'd heard it done with backstrap, uh, was Jenny Gwynn, who's now Jenny Wheatley. Cause she got married, but she is food for hunters and mm-hmm. she's of Vietnamese descent. She's from California, but her parents are from Vietnam. And, and so she does this dish and like, Oh, it's an amazing dish. So, so I, you know, I not only researched that particular dish, but I gave a hat tip to Jenny because I would not have known about it in the venison context without her. And it's important for, to do that, not only because, um, there's nothing a recipe creator hates more than to see something that is obviously yours being taken by somebody else with no credit, but it does disservice to the cultures that we are drawing from to not recognize that they not only exist, but have been doing some of this stuff for sometimes millennia. Yep. All right. I agree. And 
and I think too, especially in a lot, you get into like a lot of food blogging and people writing and, and there's the big debate between it's like, oh, I had to read three chapters of, of text before I got to the recipe. And then, you know, there's a fine, there's a fine line between that, but I absolutely agree with you about the recognition piece. And there's so much, you know, I'm, I'm of American Indian descent. You know, I was born in Oklahoma. I'm a member of the Choctaw nation. It's like, I hate to use as an example, but I will, but like Indian tacos, you know, that's a, that's oh, a piece. Fry bread thing. Yeah. Fry bread. That's, uh, you know, every, every culture in the world has some variation of fry bread. Right. So I don't think that the American Indian culture uniquely owns it, but it, it's a part. And to see, uh, there's been past, I've seen wild game writers, right. Crank out. Boom. Here's, here's an Indian taco recipe I got from, you know, my neighbor who really likes Indian tacos and thinks he may be of Indian descent. And I'm like, that's cool. But it's like, what's the story like there's a there's a story behind it that belongs to the culture too you know and the story it, behind indian fry bread is pretty controversial right can you know this because yeah, it's very, all very. like last i checked you know lard and wheat were not native to the, <laughs> no you know it's it's res no. food and it, and yeah. like sean sherman uh who's the sous chef and yep. he's one of the most prominent voices of indigenous cooking. And, and he's, he's put this great stricture on his own cooking. He'll only cook pre-contact ingredients yeah. and he's doing amazing stuff with it. And, so he hates fry bread for that yes. reason. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I mean, to me, you, you get part of the American Indian culture that embraces it. Like culture, this is a cultural identity piece and you see t-shirts and all this other stuff. And it's just like, that's great, but let's think about where it came from. Like what, what it is replacing and what it was there to do. And it's just like, and you know, there's deeper issues, obesity and all the other stuff that's oh, that's yeah. associated with it in, you know, in reservations and in tribal areas. And it's just like, is it a symbol we want to wrap our head around? But it's also like, sometimes I do enjoy fry bread. Like <laughs> you know, all things in moderation. <laughs> yeah. 100%. But I do really like what, uh, the sous chef I've been following him for a while and, and I've, really gotten on board with a lot of stuff because it's like i started working uh on a project with a friend back i want to say 2011 we started looking at a lot of traditional foods uh from the american indian cultures and was like all right let's see how we can put sort of a modern spin on it and we started putting recipes together and it just kind of the project fizzled out but i still have all the recipes and stuff but it's just like there's some challenges to overcome you know mm -hmm with a lot of traditional food because it's not like you think of a lot of European cuisines are built and not even European, but the entirety of the world are built on flavor and this tastes good. This, you know, we can take this really bad cut of meat and we can, you know, extrapolate it to, to, to taste incredible. And it's like a lot of traditional American Indian food. It's like, it's survival food, you know, Prime example, pemmican, not always the greatest taking tasting thing, but it'll keep you alive. It'll keep you moving. And it will. I, I, I'm going to moderate that a little bit by, um, so you see cuisine, cuisine appears where you have leisure mm -hmm. all over the world. And so where you have a class of people who can be fed by other people, that's where you see the development of actual cuisine where, you can get good food all over the world and you can get good food. You know, it, it, there's a bunch of great native dishes, mm -hmm. but in terms of like a cuisine, a developed cuisine, you see it 
you see it in North, and I mean, I'm talking North of the Rio Grande. Like once you get South of the Rio Grande, you've got any number of big, big, big civilizations that would, that have enough remnants to them that they've lend themselves to like Mexican cuisine has three or four different, you know, big civilizations behind it. So North of the Rio Grande, you see places like the desert Southwest, um, and you see the Pacific Northwest where you see they've gotten beyond that survival thing that you're talking about. And from what I understand, and you know, it's, there's a long, 400 years removed in time. The Iroquois nation also had pretty significant elements of cuisine mm-hmm. and like the Haudenosaunee. And so you have it, it's there. I mean, in fact, the Eastern United States kind of the, you know, imagine, not necessarily coastal Eastern, but the, the general big swath of the East of the Mississippi part of the United States where the Mississippian culture was, they are one of the independent creators of agriculture, which Mm -hmm. not a lot of people know. And it's not corn, beans, and squash. It's an entirely different set of domesticated plants that they domesticated and developed agriculture all by themselves. And it's, it only happened in six places in the earth. And that's one of them. And it's, it's interesting because they did not really build in stone. There's not a lot of physical remains left to them. And so the, the archaeology in that culture is actually very interesting and new and exciting to read about. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, I, I do like though the, the, you see the emergence of, of sort of, or I guess a reemergence and popularity of, of, traditional North American cuisine and just playing off with the, you know, a lot of ingredients we have on hand in North mm-hmm. America foraging. And, and uh, I guess that kind of points me in the direction of, of some other topics I wanted to talk to you about uh, centered around foraging and just, I guess the intersection of the foraging and the fishing and hunting world and, and the value in it. Um, where do you thought? Where do your thoughts lie with that, and and why is foraging such an important feature amongst people going into the wilderness? I think mechanically, just the like the first, you know, first first thought out of my head is I can't tell you how many times wild plants or mushrooms have have saved an otherwise unsuccessful day in the field because I know my plants and my mushrooms. Oh, the fish weren't biting, but look at all the blueberries by the lake. Or, oh, you know, the deer didn't show up, but look at all these chanterelles or whatever, whatever. And I, I mean, I, I can't even count the number of times where I've had a, a, a skunk day with ducks or deer or fish or whatever, but there's something else cool that I found because of the plants and mushrooms. I think the greater reason is because even though hunters consider themselves attuned to the land a great number of them are, are still green blind in the sense they they don't know the names of the plants and all around them they might know a few they probably know more than the, than somebody in an urban or suburban environment but the you know the inability to know the names of the plants that are around you um, makes you an incomplete human and it's a, it's not a very difficult thing to learn. You can start with your yard, figure out what are all the plants that grow in your yard, name those. And, and then you can travel to their, your, your nearest park and do that. And then you go on and so far and so forth. And you ultimately, 
get this body of knowledge in your head because human beings are extremely good at recognizing patterns that you will know that, oh yeah, so this looks kind of like the dill that I have in my garden. And it's, you know, that it's in the same family. And, you know, then if you're starting to, to pick wild plants for food purposes, you then quickly learn that, oh yeah, that family has hemlock in it. Uh, it happens to also have a bunch of delicious plants as well, but you learn what's harmful for you as well as what's good for you. And you end up being much closer to the, to the land, much closer. Like I can drive past an environment at 80 miles an hour or whatever the speed limit is. Uh, and I can tell you what's in it, you know, cause I just, I know at a glance what that, what families of plants are going to be in any given area. Now I could be slightly wrong, but I'm not going to be very wrong. And I can do that most places in the United States just because I've been doing it for so long. And that knowledge is intrinsically interesting in and of itself, but it also makes you a better hunter because your prey animals associate with particular plant groups. Mm -hmm. So you'll know that like everybody knows that deer like edges. Well, you know why they like edges It's because there's food there Mm -hmm. and deer don't like big, huge old growth forests. No, blacktail do, but whitetails don't. And and even then, blacktails will still come to edges to eat. So you you end up becoming a better predator, for for lack of a better term, by knowing your plants and mushrooms. Do you find that people, when they come to you for for advice or or for questions, are the majority of your questions within the foraging world, or, or are they kind of all over the place? They're all over the place. I mean, I've had everything from, you know, what do I do with a deer spleen to I just ate this mushroom. Is it poisonous? That's my favorite. <laughs> that happens about once a year. Oh, oh like, no, oh, man. Like every now and again, it's like somebody I vaguely know and I'll just send them back skulls and crossbones. <laughs> <laughs> and then throw like, and then throw like, a do you have anything important to say to someone you love. You should probably say it. Oh. <laughs> Fortunately, that doesn't happen often, and nobody's actually eaten something that'll send them to the hospital. But it could happen. Oh, and yeah, word of the wise: don't eat mushrooms you don't you're not familiar with. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I get all kinds of questions. I think that's one of one of my areas where I'm I'm sort of lacking is in the foraging. I, I've done a better job since we lived in the. I lived down in the Florida Keys. Like I got involved with the the Master Gardener program here and started working on a lot of native plants. And my big thing, my teacher probably got a kick out of his every day. Like when we would be in class, it was like uh, I think six weeks of instruction or something like that. You'd go one day, one day a week basically. And I would always ask her like, oh, is that one edible? Is that one edible? Is that one edible? <laughs> We'd be like out on a walk and she's like, well, this is a ground cherry. And I'm like, that's edible, right? She's like, well, yeah, but it's a little tart. And I was like, okay, it's edible. I can figure out what to do with it. <laughs> well, you got those beach, those beach grapes too down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And I, I love the history with Key West too because – um, there's little pockets of fruit and edible plants that just have traditionally existed as people settled the island. And it's like, oh, if you want, you know, this specific type of mango, you need to go over, you know, in the heart of Old Town, 
go down two streets, take a right and hanging over somebody's fence is like this really good one or, you know, Spanish limes or it's just a plethora of stuff. And it, it, if you get in a tune with the locals, they kind of point out the good spots that they know to just like cruise by on your bicycle and somebody may leave fruit out on their, uh, their front step. They do that in California too. Cause virtually everybody, if you live in California, virtually everybody grows either citrus or some other kind of fruit mm-hmm. tree. So, I mean, just in my own little neighborhood, there's at least a dozen different kinds of citrus. Wow. And it's, uh, is it, I guess, is it the, the law in, in your area where if it like hangs over to the fence in the public space, like you can, you can pick it. Yep. Yep. That's cool. That's always neat. Uh, I don't, I don't know if, if Florida has that law or if Key West even has it. I don't know. I don't know if it's come up. I don't know if Key West has that law or not, but I know that many people don't, if there is a law, many people don't abide by it. It's basically, if you can reach for it, even if it isn't hanging over the fence, people just grab it anyway. I mean, people would, I've heard stories about like uh, the guys who run the carts with coconuts and mangoes and they sell them on the side of the road. They'll just like wander into people's yards and pick them up off of people's yards and stuff without asking anybody. So well, I don't know if that's legal or not, but I doubt it is walking into someone's property, but uh, no, yeah, I know it happens a lot. I those can guys, assure you it's not legal. No, no, <laughs> those guys too, they, uh, I, I've seen people just like, Hey, who wants to come grab the coconuts from my house? And there's always yeah. something. And I'm sure they, after a while they get like a round of, of people set up, but uh, yeah, cause people, there's tons of coconuts down here and just people don't want them potentially injuring someone or yeah. something on their property. So they're just like, get them out of here. Yep. It was the coolest thing ever to see a coconut in real life. Like, Oh yeah. This, yeah. Mar- this March was the first time I'd ever seen one in real life. It's just so good. We get, uh, so I live here on, on the military base and there's probably, Oh man, in our neighborhood, which is roughly like two blocks, I would say there's probably two dozen coconut trees spread all throughout. And because it's community property, it's just like if they fall, it's who, whoever's like a lot of times landscapers will get them before anybody. But uh, my daughter, I'll come home and there'll be coconuts in our kitchen sink almost every day because she'll be out yeah. with her friends and they're running around the neighborhood and they bring them back. And we have like this little tool we open them with uh, yeah. to get it out and then I'll go smash it and we'll get the big chunks and then the the chickens will eat the rest. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got chicken. And yeah, for, right? some, uh, for some situational awareness, Justin has a, a box in his backyard that the chickens will come up and roost in during the night. So he's got a pretty nice little setup even in the middle of the base down there. Yeah, good thing iguanas are vegetarians. Otherwise, it'd be like a chicken versus iguana fight. <laughs> Trying to keep the, the iguanas out of the garden. That's the challenge. But <laughs> Yeah, I hear. I hear. Uh, I was just uh, I on Facebook. I'm a member of this group called the Hot Pepper Growing Society. And there's some guy down there who's growing hot, pal- hot peppers. And he's like, effing iguanas. And like, these little teeny like hand-sized iguanas like are mm-hmm. all over the garden. And- yeah. <laughs> They, and they will eat. It's so crazy. We just had like uh, Carolina Reapers or ghost peppers or like some of the hottest peppers like, you know, you casually grow mm-hmm. and they will come and they'll eat the entire fruit all the way around. They'll leave the seeds attached to the stem, but they'll just eat the fruit and then they won't touch anything else on the plant. Huh? 
Yeah, it's it's the most frustrating thing ever. <laughs> do you do you think they're doing that on? Is it like an evolutionary thing where they're leaving it so that the plant will like seed and germinate and grow? Or no, it's because it just, the, the capsaicin is uh, is all the the hottest part of any given pepper is is what they're In leaving the behind. Okay, it's the placenta. It's the it's what holds the seeds on, but. Okay. Yeah. So like that, that center thing where all the seeds are attached, that's the hottest part of any pepper. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, they don't like the heat. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I guess they're pretty good at it if they can eat the rest of a reaper. Yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm surprised to see them. I had the chickens going at, they were eating it one, one day too. Um, which I was also surprised to see. But. See, that surprises me less because I know that birds can't, are not susceptible to capsaicin, which hmm. is why there's an entire class of peppers that, rely on birds to eat them Bird peppers. and then the, yeah and then they they poop out the seeds and the seeds are now ready to germinate so they have um we have a, there's a, a native bird pepper to key west and we were germinating and growing and uh just like passing them out to the community we had one of the local policemen here was giving them giving the seeds to us he got a starter from somebody and then it turned out where at one point in time we had like 30 something plants because that was one of those things kind of going back to what i was saying earlier everybody in key west traditionally used to have a bird pepper plant at their house and that's like what they would flavor food with so there's a big uh movement to try to revive that uh the growing of that plant in key west and it's just like that's super cool people if they hear they're like yo you have bird peppers and they're like yeah they're like well can i have like five or six I'm like yeah sure like it's great but uh the the birds will eat them green which is the oddest part also frustrating yeah but- come pick them right off the stem when they're green before they've changed color yeah that's weird this episode is brought to you by reese's peanut butter cups in breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. They're smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts. You can grill steaks. You can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. We've talked about so much. I love these conversations. <laughs> so let's talk. Uh, let's talk some about your recipe development, because um, I know everybody's got a process. I have a process, and and I'm sure that that you have a process as well. Um, how do you one? How do you get inspiration? Two. Where do you get inspiration from for your recipes? And then, uh, how do you sort of formulate and test and create uh, those recipes? 
So I get inspiration from anything. Um, I've, I've had inspiration in anything from airport food to, you know, good meals I've had traveling to meals, you know, from my past to books. You know, I, I mean, I've got hundreds of cookbooks and I think all of those things will, you know, I'm a voracious reader of cookbooks. And so I've, I've got this memory of really what those ingredients yeah, the stuff that, it, that 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 like an odd thing that that recipe will require, and I'll, I'll store it away in my head. And then at some point in time, I'm like, "Oh yeah, I've got those now. Let me find that recipe." And 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 so, you know, there's purslane or you know chachalacas or some kind of weird fish or seafood or something like that. Um, you know, the inspiration can come from almost anything, and. Another big source of inspiration that I have are, are my, the various adventures I go on. And so I will create a dish that is reflective of that experience, whether it's a hunt or a trip fishing or, or even just uh, gathering plants. Uh, I created, you know, I created a dessert that was entirely made of uh, very, various edible plants from a trip to the high Sierra one day. I did um, a dish called uh, Walleye Minot after fishing for walleyes near Minot, North Dakota. And, you know, I've done all, any number of those dishes. And I, those are really, those are, those, that's where I get to really flex as a chef is you think about all of the edible plants and around the environment in which you hunted or you fished or you did something. Mm -hmm. And then how do you fit all of those things together? And with color, with flavor, with texture, with temperature, with all of the different things that make a really good dish, um, I don't get to do it as much as I as I'd like. But and because I got to earn a living, and you know, weird unrepeatable dishes may look nice and taste amazing, but it's not like somebody's googling for you know a, a spruce grass grouse dish entirely based off things from the boreal forest of Alberta. Um, but that said, that dish, was now. <laughs> that dish was amazing. <laughs> uh, so once I figure out, okay, I'm going to do, let's take something a little bit more down to earth. So let's like right now, um, I have been working on dumplings, Asian dumplings. And so I haven't really, I mean, I've got a venison pot stickers recipe on the site. But there's so many different other kinds of ways that you can go with, with Asian dumplings. And there's very specific folds and doughs and fillings. And, and there's just a lot to know. And whenever I post something, I want it to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it, part of that conversation is to promote a cookbook that I think is amazing and that you should have too. So I'll do a dish from it. I'll say... This is an amazing dish. It's going to open your eyes. And here's the book it comes from. And I want to highlight that. So that's that's an easy one. Some cases, it will be I want to post uh, like hargao dumplings, which is a, a shrimp, pork and shrimp dumpling. Um, it's actually mostly just shrimp dumpling. And it's made with this wheat starch dough that's really insanely difficult to, do, to deal with. So I'm going to make it like as many times as it takes to get it right and to be able to translate it into a, uh, a recipe that you don't have to be a chef to make. 
So sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's one of those things where like, mm, yeah, that was good. I don't think this is a dead end. Or sometimes it's like, yeah, that's amazing, but no one is going to make that. And sometimes it's a case of this is only amazing because I have all these trippy, weird ingredients. And the only reason I have them is because I live in California where there's a like 200,000 square foot Asian market, like three miles from my house. Like, like, (laughs) you know, so, I mean, there are things that I, you know, you recognize like, okay, I, I'm going to make it authentically and I'm always going to do that. And I, because like we talked before, I owe it to that, whatever culture I'm cooking from, this is how it's supposed to be. This is what it tastes like. And this is how, this is the technique by which it's made. So I have to get good at that first. So I often have to make something quite a bit before I can then translate it. Because while I'm making it all these times, I ha- I always think of Ashley, North Dakota. So the reason I mentioned that place is because my friend Niskanen, the guy who got me into hunting, he used to have a house there um, that he bought just to be a base to go hunting with. So whenever I would go there, it's a town of like, I don't know, 300, if that what was in their supermarket. And so it's important for me or somebody, if they can't make it with the weird ingredients from the Asian market, well, what can they substitute? And what can they substitute that's legit? Most cases, not all, but most cases, there's something that they can substitute that's easily available to them. So I have to figure out what that is. And then, you know, when it's time to make the recipe, we make the recipe. And Holly takes Holly food shoots photographs and she does a great job because it has to look good. Like here's a case. I'm very good at making Alabama white sauce, which if you're not familiar with it is a particular kind of barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. It's a mayonnaise based barbecue sauce, typically done on chicken. It's great. It's fantastic. It looks gross. Let's just say it looks <laughs> like the aftermath of a hot encounter. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> and we've yet to make it look good on film. So like, like we're not going to photograph something that everyone goes like, Oh, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, there's certain dishes like baba ganoush, which is a like mushed eggplant dip. It's ugly as homemade sin. Mm -hmm. So like there are certain dishes that just, you know, have to figure out a way to photograph it. So that doesn't look as bad as it really is. Stroganoff. Stroganoff is a butt ugly looking dish. Tastes amazing, but it's an ugly dish. It took us all kinds of, you know, flip turns to make it look good for buck, buck moose. Uh, but we did. And so that's actually a big part of it. Like you have to see that in your email box or on the website and be like, damn, that looks good. I want to make that. And yeah. it's important. And you know what I got to say is for many years, it was just me and Holly, like nobody else in this outdoor space was taking decent photographs. No one for like a decade <laughs> and and in the last four or five years people have been getting really good mm-hmm. and so the the level of photography in the outdoor space you know outdoor cooking space uh has really been i'm impressed and, and that's you're talking about before about goals and, and keeping the eye of the tiger that keeps us on our toes because there's a lot of people who are getting very good at this yep uh, yeah that's one thing we we push pretty strongly to I I've gotten photos that I'm not excited about the recipes sound great. And like I would eat it, but it's just like, 
you know, I've I've prepared stuff. There's one actually. It's a recipe I want to talk about in a little while, uh, shortly uh, or mention that just like we shot it back in the early days. I, I think maybe 2000. We shoot it. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It it looks like it's a great recipe. It's with roasted rabbit and prickly pear sauce, and it's just like that. It goes in the story just like you're telling. Like uh, it was uh, jackrabbit actually. I think, and we were out hunting and I was like, Oh look, there's prickly pears too. And so I'll take those and boom, made this whole great dish, but it looks like, and I was talking with my wife and I was like, Hey, what's a really creative way we could place it, plate this. She's like, well, just take a plain white plate and just like splatter it all on there. It'll look really artistic. And I was like, at the end of it, I think I sent it to somebody and they were like, it looks like you just murdered the rabbit and put it on the plate. And I'm like, Oh no, but it tastes great. (laughs) That's actually a chef's uh, chef's term for that. So there's there's two terms that we use quite a bit. Um, one is the and I don't know, you might have to bleep this out, but the shit stain, which is where you you take a big spoon and you go pop on a plate and then you mm-hmm. smear it, and it's usually like a brown thick sauce. Yep. <laughs> so there's that one, and then there's the murder scene, which is exactly what you did with that jackrabbit, which is. Typically, I mean, it doesn't always be a red sauce, but it's a sauce where it's like, wah, on the plate. And it's like, then you call it art. <laughs> yep, it was. It was probably like my most artistic stretch I've ever done. And I was like, I don't think I'll ever. I, don't, I just don't know. And, uh, plating, is, plating is difficult and plating has fashion. Oh, so yeah. the, the way we played it in 08 and 09 and 2010 will not cut it right now. Oh, it's the the evolution just in the and I think plating angles of photography, all those things that have evolved quickly over the last couple of years, I think just mm-hmm. to see change and the appeal of what people want um, you know, overhead shot up close like what it's hard to say. And it it's a tough game because like you mentioned it's like it's a scroll you know, you throw scroll through your Facebook feed and you're like, all right, that cool. That looks good. Uh, you know? And then you're like, Whoa, that looks really good. And then you click on the link, but otherwise it's just a scroll. Yep. So, well, the overhead shot is so popular because it's easy. Mm-hmm. Like I can do, I can shoot a kick-ass overhead shot, but it takes someone like Holly to shoot a kick-ass angle shot. Angle yes. shots are hard. And, and so, that's a real differentiator between someone who really does know how to take a photograph and somebody who just, you know, like me, who's just a snap shooter. Yeah. And lighting. I, I've found like oh, yeah. so much. So, and it's like, it, I, I talked to the crew a lot about lighting, like, you know, go shoot next to a window, put a sheet, like you, you have to get a little creative and it's just like, it, it may look good, but if it's on the kitchen counter and you, you know, you have yellow lighting overhead, like it's not going to do the dish justice. So, but I everybody works. I don't think I'll be taking pictures of any food that I make anytime soon for you, Justin. So no, it's okay. Go, go for it. <laughs> it's it's an evolution. I didn't start off taking great pictures. Yeah, nobody did. Wait, till, wait yeah. till the season comes around, then we'll see. <laughs> so I guess that that's actually it, it's a perfect segue. Um, Hank, what what do you think are some some recommended skills for either beginner wild game cooks or experienced wild game cooks that if they're looking to get a little more proficient that um that that they should get involved in? I think the vast majority of your time, if you're going to spend it well, is to 
just be good at basic techniques. And there's there's no there's no special thing that you need to know as a wild game cook. You just need to be a good cook. So you need to be able to cook a piece of meat to temperature. And with game, it's significantly more difficult than it is with steak or pork because of the lack of fat. So just as skinny people get colder more quickly than fat people do, fat is an insulator when you're cooking. So the presence of it, it, it makes it that even if you, the temperature is a little too, if it's over, you know, so if you ate Wagyu beef medium, well, it's still going to be amazing. You eat a piece of venison backstrap medium. Well, it's not going to be amazing because it lacks that internal fat. And there's no, there's almost no marbling. And I say almost because I've seen it twice in all my years of hunting and cooking and butchering. I've only seen marbling in wild game twice. Um, it's exceedingly rare. And so Cooking, be able to being able to cook lean meat to perfection, single single most important thing you can learn. Um, learn how to cook fish, which is to say not much. And you know this is basically a, an overall maxim that you should all live by. Everybody who's listening to this, you can always cook it more. Right? Mm-hmm. You can't cook it less. Mm -mm. so if you're going to make a mistake undercook something and you will first of all you'll find that it tastes better typically depending on how you normally cook but but if case in point if you cook a pheasant breast or a quail breast to an internal temperature of 150 degrees fahrenheit that's medium well it's phenomenal it's still cooked through it's got a blush of pink right in the center of it but it's perfect you could even go like a degree or two below that, but I wouldn't go too much below. Otherwise, you get kind of like weirdness inside. It's still safe to eat. Like it's perfectly safe to eat medium rare quail. Perfectly safe. Nobody gets sick from from undercooked wild game birds. They don't. There's no records of it, and I've read them all. So that's always the thing that you have to remember. S- same thing with like a, a when you're grilling anything. Your tendency is to get that good grill mark. And if you get the good grill mark, sometimes you have overcooked the thing. So one way, if you're really obsessed with good grill marks, chill your meats, chill your fish. It should come right out of the fridge and onto the grill if you want that good grill mark. Because guess what? We're not really typically dealing with things that are very thick. So if you're talking about a bird, you're talking about a piece of fish, you're talking about flank steak, you're talking about skirt steak. All of these things are way better right out of the fridge because it gives you that that chill buys you time to get the good grill mark without overcooking the interior of the meat. Now, a thick ribeye or a big pork chop is an entirely different story, but but that's but I digress. So that's important. Learn how to make stock. We shoot and catch so many different things that can be made into broths and stock that are amazing that if you don't know how to do that, you're missing out. Yeah. And f- short version... I'm talking about stock, not talking about bone broth. They're two very different things. Bone broth includes some sort of calcium. Uh, the, people want to extract calcium out of it, so typically they add acidity to it, which is never in a stock. A stock or a broth is a basic building block of something else. A bone broth is this concoction where people think they get more nutrition out of it, and it's entirely debatable whether they do or not. I, for the one, deeply dislike cloudy boiled for two days broths. Mm-hmm. It's just not my thing. If you like it, go for it. Learn how to do it. 
I prefer clear stocks and broths. So learn how to do that. That's another thing. Learn how to build a stew. You know, very, very few stews are, hmm, I've got a bunch of things. I'm going to throw them in a pot and pour water over it and walk away. I mean, you can. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're busy, if you're just trying to survive, you can do that. But that's not a good stew. That's an okay stew. Not everything in that pot needs the same amount of time to cook. In some cases, the meat requires two hours longer than anything else. And so learn those layers, you know, the, the, when to put the green thing in, when to put the starch in, when to put beans in, when to put the meat in, know why you're going to brown something or not brown something. It, it, it creates very different effects, very different effects between, uh, anything that is cooked with browning or without browning. You know, for example, Asian broths are never browned. They're never roasted because they, they value a clear broth. It's a cleaner flavor. Um, so that's one thing. Learn how to fry. For God's sake, man, learn how to fry. Like everyone's like, like everyone likes to poop on frying. And like, I'm sorry, if you have something that is perfectly fried, it is not greasy. No. You know, don't be afraid of 350 degree oil. Like everybody freaks out. They're like, yeah, well, I started frying at 310 because I was afraid of 350. I'm like, I know it's greasy. I'm like, well, duh. Like <laughs> you still had 40 degrees to go. And then you forgot that when you drop something in, it drops the temperature because the item you put into it displaces. Oh God. Just drives me batty. <laughs> like, like, a, like the first batch was good. The second one, like, well, yeah, because you didn't let the oil heat back up to 350 yeah. in between batches. So like learn how to fry because really, I mean, let's face it. If you think you don't like fried food, you're either deeply, deeply, deeply self-deluded or you've just never had really good fried food, which is also possible because bad fried food is exceptionally bad. Yes. So that's, an, that's another bedrock skill. Uh, learn how to cut meat. You know, there's a reason why certain things are tender and certain things have a good chew to them. And, and, you know, and I'm not talking just about butchering and that's important. I mean, that's another thing. Like you should just, you should learn how to butcher your own animals that you bring home, whether it's filleting a fish or, or butchering a deer or a rabbit or a bird. It's, it's kind of important because if you care about the food that you serve, you're really going to trust that to a, you know, a processor who does 4,800 deer in a, in a season. And that's not really an exaggeration in some parts of the, of the country. Like mm -hmm. there are processors who are running like a hundred deer a day through during season. They don't care the same way that you care. And now that's sad for every story about that. There's going to be somebody be like, well, my butcher's amazing. Great. Wonderful. Work with that butcher because you have a special one and there's not many like them. It, the other thing is people butcher idiosyncratically. Go to a Mexican restaurant, you know, go to a Mexican carniceria. Look at how their cut, what their cuts of meat look like. Entirely different. Well, because they butcher the way they cook. The French do that. Everybody does this. Like you butcher the way you cook. And so if you need a packet of X for Y dish, because you know in your head when you shot that deer, you're going to make a whole bunch of X. Well, you're going to cut the deer that way. And a, and you can't really tell unless unless by some miracle of chance you have a Mexican butcher who will take a deer in his place, which might happen somewhere, maybe in South Texas. But but like there's very few places like that. So 
you know, learn how to break apart an animal. That's, that's important. Um, one, what's another really good one. One other just ironclad rule of, of wild game cooking that, that everybody, everybody who's a beginner screws up. They cook the tender parts too much and the tough parts too little. You know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that a turkey drumstick was inedible, I could eat at the French laundry every weekend. <laughs> like, eh, it's too tough. We'll keep cooking it, you knob. I mean, and, like, it's going to get soft. It's going to get tender. I mean, the tendons won't, but the meat will fall off them. I converted and, several of my friends with your uh, turkey carnita recipe. See? They They keep the drumsticks mm-hmm. and thighs now. Yeah, I mean, and that's... Uh, you, you bring up a great point because the, how do you do that? You buy, you you have the forethought, this goes back to the cutting your own meat. You have the forethought to have a packet of drumsticks and a packet of thighs because the thighs are in, incredibly versatile, but the drumsticks are less versatile. They're both good in their own way. But like if I kill four or five turkeys a year, which is on the high end, um, you better believe there's going to be a packet of just drumsticks and a packet of just thighs. Because they're just, they, you use them in different ways. Now, can you make carnitas out of thighs? Absolutely, it's great. But there are other ways to cook a thigh that are that you can't do with a drumstick. And that, that the knowledge of being able to separate those two is important. Shanks is another one. Like, mm-hmm. like I'm pretty sure I was the first guy to to start, you know, the the shank evangelical train. Now, a lot of people have picked it up, and I'm and I'm happy to see that. <laughs> but, actually, you know, I mean. I, I uh I, I I butchered a wild pig the other day for uh for a guy who brought it down and uh you know I I text him because I did one before him too and I text him I was like hey man do you want the shanks and he's like what I was like do you want the shanks he's like no I was like well can I have them then because we were doing a split on the meat and he's like yeah take them all and so the next one he brought me I didn't even text him and I took it and I was like here's these shanks he's like what I was like take these like put them in the crock pot, braise them, like do something with them. You're going to, you're never going to give them away again. Like they're phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with a hog. I mean, yeah. The world's greatest ham hock. Oh yes. Right. I, I smoked the crap out of my, uh, like javelina or, or hog shanks. Mm-hmm. And because I eat a lot of beans and I eat a lot of greens and there's nothing better than to throw a, a smoked hawk or, or shank or whatever into a pot of water, let it sit for an hour and then throw the other stuff in. Oh, yeah. And you strip all the meat off, and oh man, that's the way we that's the way we eat beans, uh, like pinto beans. Growing up, mm-hmm. it's more and it's more of like a soup um, than a than a sort of like a paste. You think of like red beans or some of the other where people just eat the beans themselves. But oh man, smoked, yeah, I mean it's, you're talking about chato beans, mm-hmm. yeah, smoked ham and beans. Oh, that's like that's the best ever, right? <laughs> Comfort. Yeah, meal. I mean, I think I think the uh, the last piece would be to either go to my website or yours or, or somebody you trust um, when it comes to the, the wobbly bits, because that's where people get the most squinchy um, hearts and livers and tongues and kidneys and gizzards and things mm-hmm. like that. Well, I, my stock and trade has been to provide you, the listener reader or whoever with not only recipes that use the cuts, but make you want to eat them first. Because done, they, they, they tend to be a bit more limited than, say, a hind leg. But the things that they're very good at, they're very good at. 
mm-hmm. to the point where I mean, I don't, I mean, I've eaten tongue six ways to Sunday. I don't know if there's any better use for a tongue than tacos de lengua. Oh, and yes. <laughs> yes. Like, I just, it's, just, it's, you know, I'm especially if you're a hunter, right? Like how many tongues are you going to get? Right. So <laughs> I mean, they only have one on a deer and like a, a deer tongue is like a single serving for tacos de lengua. So like guys in the South who shoot like 12 deer, they're in business or, you know, people who want elk or moose or something like that. Um, but yeah, pigs even. Pigs have a really good sized tongue as well. But mm-hmm. that's a case where if I served anybody that taco and didn't tell them what it was, they'd be, this is amazing. Then you tell them it's tongue and they get all squinchy. You know, and so the, I for one, and, and there's a lot, a few of us doing this out there, are trying to not make, so the, the last thing you want to do is say, you need to eat your fifth quarter, you know, your, your giblets or whatever. I don't want to make you feel bad. I don't want to moralize. I don't want to say, you know, you disrespect the animal by not eating whatever. Cause even if I were to think that way, like that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to give you a di- like I have, um, uh, devil kidneys recipes on the web, on the website and it's an English recipe and Holly hates kidneys hates them with the heat of a thousand suns and she likes this dish. So it's a, it's a case where just if you, if, if this is the only thing you do with kidneys, there you go. And, and so that's the creation of accessible, certifiably delicious dishes with offcuts is another thing that I try very hard to do. Um, I'm glad you brought up tongue and, and talked about it a little bit because I was actually going to ask you specifically about tongue and specifically uh, how do you go about prepping it for tacos de lengua or any other tongue dish that you would want to make? So there's and a couple ways to go about specific, it. So. Yeah, there's a couple ways to go about it. And the, the, the way that I just posted on the site is my now preferred method. Okay. Um, so the way I do it, it's a little involved and you don't have to be this involved, but so I have what's called a master stock when I make barbacoa. So it's this, it's the broth that you cook the pieces of meat in and I keep this broth forever. So when that batch of barbacoa is done, I strain it out. And if I'm not cooking in the next four or five days, I put it in a Mason jar and always leave headspace. Otherwise your Mason jar will crack. Um, and then I freeze it. And then, oh, I'm going to do another batch. I use that as like the starter for like, a, like imagine like a, a sourdough starter. It's like the, the stock starter for the next round of whatever. Okay. So I bring that up because I use that to braise the tongues in. And so I braise them below a simmer. So 170-ish. One, yeah, I mean, it's not going to hurt anything if you go to a simmer, but don't boil it. Like just a simmer, like it's a shimmy. It's not a rolling boil. Um, and then you let that, go until it's tender and like it's game ladies and gentlemen so i can't tell you like (laughs) you know that's the thing like with wild game you you have to embrace chaos because i don't know how old your animal was um so it's going to take anywhere from 90 minutes to three hours and you just start checking it after 90 minutes and you know it's right when you can take a like a a thin sharp knife and just stick it in the tongue and it goes it slides right in then you know you're done so pull them out and let it cool for a little bit on like a, you know, in a hotel pan or something, but you have to peel it while it's hot. 
it's kind of unpleasant because it's going to burn your fingers because there's fat and gelatin in the in the tongue, and that hurts more than just straight up steam because it sticks to your fingers. So you can wear gloves if you want, but I tend to have asbestos fingers. So you just peel off that skin. Do you have to peel the skin? You don't, but otherwise you have food that tastes you back. And I'm not a huge <laughs> fan on that. Yes. So <laughs> a little unnerving. That's more unnerving than bot flies are for me. So mm, delicious. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, once it's, once it's peeled like that, it won't taste you back. And I will, I will now go one of two routes. I'll either smoke it cold. Now, I don't mean like official cold smoking, but I mean below 200 degrees mm-hmm. or, and this is, I actually prefer because it's quicker. I'll fire up the grill and grill them over a really smoky mesquite fire until you get like a lot of smoky brown goodness and then chop them. And then I, I always have some fresh lard kicking around. We use duck fat or, I mean, I guess you could use oil, but that would be less fun. Um, and then you just toss it with that. And then there you go. So you've got tender, the tongue is tender. You, if you, if you're dealing with large tongues, I should note this. If you're dealing with like a, a, a beef tongue or a moose or an elk or something big like that, cut it when you grill it cut it into several pieces because you want to get as much maillard reaction you know enough browning and grilly marks on those on that tongue pieces as you can without making the tongue uh tough again by overcooking okay so then chop 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 and then you're good to go awesome thank you so i think uh our our clock is starting to tick down here unfortunately <laughs> we've had a good conversation though um so you mentioned I, I did want to highlight you mentioned you're working on a new uh fish and seafood book so i'm excited to see that come out once it's complete that'll be have, have you decided on a name with that we have i haven't really i'm not ready to announce it yet <laughs> that's fine we'll eagerly wait <laughs> So I but, saw you had a little bit of a contest going on the Facebook group trying to go with that three name. I with did. Like- I did. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I can, I can, I can tell you this, the name was one of the suggested names. So mm-hmm. somebody out there is going to get a free, free couple of books and, and be acknowledged in the acknowledgements. That's awesome. Uh, that leads me to my, my, sort of uh next thought is is what's the best way for people to connect with you we've talked about the website Corey just mentioned the facebook group any other good ways to get in touch with you uh, ask questions or i think the three best ways to interact with me uh on a on a virtually real-time basis because especially now that miss rona is running the world uh, <laughs> i'm home a lot more than i thought i would be and so the probably the single best way is to go to the website which it's Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook. And the easiest way to get to it is huntgathercook.com. Now, that's a redirect, but it's it's a lot easier to remember than the actual URL, which is honest-food.net. So huntgathercook.com will get you to my website, and I, I answer questions there every day. On social media, the two best places are Instagram, and I am huntgathercook on Instagram. And I'm there pretty much all the time because I like Instagram. It's very low drama. And speaking of low drama, uh, and you were mentioned the, the Facebook group, and this is a Facebook group. It's called the Hunt Gather Cook Group. It's private. So um, you have to answer some questions to get in and just, just say that you heard me on the uh, this um, 
podcast. And I will let you in uh, because we try to vet members for that so that we don't get, you know, crazy people, basically. <laughs> At least I, I try my best. Because this is the thing. It's a it's a site that is entirely dedicated to being better at working with wild foods. So we have everything from, you know, hippie earth mothers to dually driving, you know, people somewhere to the right of Attila the Hun. Uh, and <laughs> and I'm okay with that because everybody leaves their politics at the door and they talk just about the food and it's worked very, very, very well. I mean, I, I, I think I've swung the band hammer not even once a month. Which is pretty yeah. good for a, a group with twenty thousand members. Yeah, I, I really love good. that group. Everybody is so helpful when you have a question, or there's mm -hmm. always you always get the information you're looking for. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about it that's so great is that like it's the Borg of wild food. Like resistance is futile because if I don't know it, somebody there's going to know it, and and so you get this incredible distillation of wild food knowledge that makes us all smarter awesome yeah it's a great group i love it as well uh i've been a member for a while uh i like sharing pictures and stuff too on it and like Corey said everybody's super positive and helpful unless your pictures look really bad and then they're, you know <laughs> it's all right every now and again we'll get a you know but that's just good fun you know? yeah it's, it's natural we're not, we're not really <laughs> questioning your manhood just your decision to <laughs> do a frontal flash photo of a piece of food <laughs> <laughs> so uh hank we, we kind of at the end we give everybody sort of a, a round last thought or alibi or anything uh so please if, if you'd like to lead us off any any last thought for the listeners or for us i think it's just don't take yourself too seriously and and just be okay to fail and have fun while you're making yourself better wise words yep Corey, and, and just I know I didn't talk a whole lot this evening, but it, it was great listening to Hank uh, talk and and uh, you know a lot. I have lear learned a lot of wild game cooking from Hank and from Justin and from Stephen Ranella. But so the you those three have been big inspirations for me. So it's it's been a privilege to to have you on, and I, I appreciate you you being here. Thank you. Colin? Yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming on. It's nice talking to you tonight. Uh, thanks for an answering my very pointed questions a couple times. But uh, I, I think we've heard it a couple times now. Is don't take yourself too seriously in the kitchen. That's the, that's the easiest way. That's the best way to, to get over your fear of messing up a, you know, your one tongue that you have or your one sage grouse breast or something like that. So, uh, Thanks for the advice. Keep it in mind. Looking forward to the next book. Yeah, me too. Hank, uh, I'll echo what these guys said. Thanks for coming on. Um, like I told you before we started recording, and, and I think even when recording, a uh, huge fan, have been for a long time. You definitely were one of the inspirations for me uh, sort of venturing into the the outdoor world and, and coupling my writing and cooking with, uh, with my passion for for hunting and fishing. So I do appreciate that and happy you had the time to, uh, to chat with us. So yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So 
all of our guests know, as always, show notes uh, will include the links to all the recipes we discussed. We discussed a lot, so we'll try to get them in. Our Some of our recipes, Hank's recipes too, so you can go check those out. And uh, as always, head over to social media, check us out at Harvesting Nature, all the platforms, and uh, smash that uh, five-star button if you get a chance, whatever podcast platform you listen to. Leave us a review. Let us know what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, and uh, have a good night. anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv